1: everyone and welcome to new books in anthropology a channel on the new books network i'm reagan gillam a host on the channel and today we're talking to dr todney thomas who is the author of the book kincraft the making of black evangelical sociality published by duke university press i'm delighted to talk with a fellow Cornelian and fellow uva grad <laughs> on the show and so dr thomas welcome to the podcast
0: Thanks, Reagan. It's great to um, be a part of it, and also to talk to a fellow uh, UVA and Cornell alum. We crossed paths in an interesting kind of way, right? Definitely, definitely. We <laughs> we both are products, I think, of
1: anthropology at both institutions, just in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. So that's right. so cool. Um, so I gave like a, a very brief, you know, uh, introduction, just saying where you graduated from. But can you tell us more about yourself? Your background, um, what sparked your interest in this topic, and how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, um, I am an anthropologist like yourself. Um, I did my undergrad work at Cornell and my graduate uh, coursework and study at the University of Virginia. Um, originally, um, I was very interested in studying sort of two things: um, the Afro-Caribbean diaspora in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and uh, how people create broad forms of kin-based association. Uh, So I was very interested in transnational family networks, um, lateral forms of kinship. Um, So those are the forms of kinship between um, uh, brothers, sisters, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, and nephews. The official term is collateral kinship. I wrote my master's degree on that. Um, and so I came into religion a bit later um, I was doing preliminary field work in 2006 and trying to find um, a location for um, my my research and and was dealing with the decentralized character of the Atlanta sort of cityscape, right it's it's uh, a collection of a number of suburbs, right and so the sort of uh, urban sprawl of the city uh, made finding um, a kind of just spatial uh, location for the project difficult. And so my grad advisor asked, you know, what about, what about churches? Um, and so I would I'd sort of nursed um, a longstanding interest in theology, but I'd never, you know, discussed that. Um, and so later, um, really around my third year as a doctoral student, Um, I decided to um, see if there was a way to look at um, the sort of Afro-Caribbean community in Atlanta, um, kin making and religion. So religion was uh, sort of the last addition to my set of research interests, Uh, was very scary, a very scary change uh, for me. Um, But uh, the anthropology of Christianity was just starting to really come into, uh, I think just come into sight as a visible subfield of inquiry and analysis. And so I felt that, uh, doing research with Christian communities, um, at that time, um, would be, um, would at least have some sense of legibility, you know, um, and, for me, I think the, the kind of final, okay, I'm ready to do this. Um, I encountered, uh, the ethnography between Sundays, uh, black women in everyday struggles of faith by Marla Frederick. And it's just this gorgeous, um, monograph. Um, and I felt so inspired that I was like, okay, I can do this. So, um, you know, the irony of all of that being that, you know, I'm at a divinity school and I've been in religious studies departments for my professional career, um, but my pathway into religion was was not initially planned, um, but it has been a very fruitful um, field of engagement for me um, that I just appreciate very much, um, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, definitely. That's so interesting hearing how people come to these projects. <laughs> always it's it's can be you know these circumstances just come together and then you know you go from there right Mm -hmm. and so you uh you undertake this ethnographic research at churches which you mentioned in the Atlanta area and they are the Dixon Bible Chapel and the Corinthian Bible Chapel and these are Bible believing brethren churches composed of mainly black congregants and you write about how black evangelicals are Black evangelicals are obscured at the crossroads of race and religion, meaning they're obscured by evangelical religion, which is raced as white, and the Black church is understood mainly to be Protestant. And so can you talk about this erasure of Black evangelicals and why you thought it was important to focus uh, specifically on Black evangelicals?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the the focus kind of came as a result of um, really... um, walking into a community and, and noticing just the very um, frequency of kinship discourse that was used um, by church members. And so um, I was interested in looking at a kind of Afro-Caribbean congregation, but wasn't, you know, in terms of research design thinking, okay, aha, I'm going to focus on black evangelicals. Um, The, the way in which, Um, my work was received, um, particularly after doing field work, doing those presentations. um, uh, You know, I think later in the grad school um, career and earlier in my professional career, um, I noticed that there was um, a real kind of discordance. Um, You know, I was at a conference in Ghana and Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright was in the audience and I heard him lean over and say, who are these people? Um, and when I would be in conversation with some of, of my colleagues who do work on American evangelicalism, there would just be a, num- a number of set of questions, right? Um, and, and so um, what I did was, and this is something that I talked to my students about, was I ethnographized um, the responses to my work, right? And, and noticed that sometimes people would spend more time trying to figure out how to locate this community Then (laughs) listen to some of the the ethnographic content I was presenting. And so I was like, huh, this has to be a real issue. And so um, what I uh, sort of was able to to realize was that this community really laid at uh, the the interstices of some racialized religious categories, uh, very popular religious categories in the United States uh, that um, really, Um, Evangelicalism, and I I ask students, when you hear the word evangelical, who comes to mind? Who doesn't come to mind? um, I was dealing with the fact that even on the part of religious studies scholars, um, evangelical is a raced concept, right? Um, I think that uh, evangelical also, we tend to think of Black evangelicals as part of an evangelical past, um, as part of the first and second great awakenings. Um, and certainly there is a National Black Evangelical Association, but for some reason, the existence of contemporary evangelicals tends to fall out of the lens. And I, and I would say that even the, the phenomenon of the, the Trump evangelical also contributed to that, right, contributed to the ongoing racialization, the racing of evangelical, um, evangelicalism as whiteness. Um, and then when it comes to, I think, the Black church, and I'm putting, you know, scare quotes around that. Um, I think we as scholars and, and, and I think even practitioners have an idea of when we're talking about the black church, we know what kinds of Christianities come to mind. Um, and it's really a kind of Afro-Protestant mainline. Like, you know, I think about when I think about the black church, the first thing that comes to mind is the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Right. You know, uh, so sort of the first historically black uh, denomination uh, in, in our country Um, but we might think also of Kojic. We might think of this sort of institutional apparatus. Uh, We might think of the large numbers of Black Methodists, uh, the large numbers of um, Black Baptists uh, that exist in our country. Um, But I also knew that Black church was complicated because I grew up myself as a Presbyterian, um, and I was part of a local Black Presbyterian tradition in Knoxville, Tennessee that was over 150 years old. And I still remember going to our national conference, the General Assembly, and seeing how white (laughs) the Presbyterian church was. And I I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Right. Because for me, Presbyterianism had been this predominantly black experience. And so, um, you know, being in conversation with other colleagues of mine who find out that I'm Presbyterian and they tease me like, oh, you know, Presbyterian, you know, um that part of our Black church concept and, and, and our evangelical concepts are about demography, um, but they don't speak to the complexity and nuance of lived reality. And so um, finding out about that, that religion and race was really um, a product, not just of my ethnographic experience, which, you know, some of the people that I collaborated with would talk about what it meant to be a Black evangelical, right, that some of their family members um, found it to be strange or um, you know, made assumptions about what their political sensibilities were. Um, but even in addition to that ethnographic experience, my own experience in presenting this work and and talking about my work uh, to my colleagues um, also signposted uh, some of this this crossroads obscurity that that you so um, beautifully outlined in your question.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and so I wanted to then ask uh, about your central concept that organizes the book, uh, which is, you know, also the title of the book, which is Kincraft. And, and as you said, you notice people in these churches using the language of kinship. Uh, they're deeply engaged in processes of making kinship relations among themselves. Mm-hmm. So can you describe your concept of kincraft for us?
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, Kincraft is, uh, you know, the term that I use to describe um, this sort of complex web of relationships uh, that uh, are kind of consistently being made by church members through um, their sort of spiritual um, uh, sensibilities. Right. They understand themselves um, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Um, there's this idea that when Christians are born again, um, the Holy Spirit indwells inside of them. And the Holy Spirit is a relating agent that connects all Christians. Um, and, and even quite capaciously, right? Across space and time. Um, but rather than that, just being a kind of ideological construct, this, this understanding of spiritual kinship is supposed to be guiding how you relate to Uh, your fellow church members in everyday life, right? So it's not just a theology or a set of ideas. It is something that people have a great amount of conviction around um, that also necessitates um, very important institutional and everyday practices. Um, And so, um, you know, spiritual kinship, this kinship between brothers and sisters in Christ is, is activated or enlivened through um, shared worship together, um, biblical study. Bible study was the most common thing that I did while doing my field work. I did about an average of four Bible studies a week, um, praying together, right? Um, it's about food sharing and, and deep hanging out, right? Um, you know, there are church members, they line together on the weekends. Um, they watch each other's children. They help raise each other's children. Um, it's about, you um, what, how people show up for each other as they navigate just the emergent cycles and crises of life, family illness, death, job loss, job insecurity. Um, and in addition to just sort of the the sort of most common, you know, refrain of, you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, there were also these other relationships that I noticed that church members would talk about if I asked them questions about who they considered family. And so they would mention, you know, their spiritual mothers or spiritual fathers. Um, they would mention prayer partners um, as well. And so Kingcraft um, is a term I coined to try and, and um, to capture this web of, of relatedness that uh, church members are Um, located in, that this is a thick Christianity, right? A very socially mediated Christianity. Um, And craft is important because it it focuses on making, um, that this is a form of of kinship that's not just about theology or received categories, that people invest a great deal of time and energy um, into this sort of thick relational Christianity, Christian community, Christian family that they're a part of. I remember doing an interview with a woman, and I was asking about just sort of her social world, right—the the important people and who she counted as kin—and um, and really, you know, I I didn't let the that biology be the driver. I let people define um, who they uh, understood to be kin and how. And when I asked about friends, you know, and she she laughed at me. She said. What makes you think after all of that, that I have time for other friends? <laughs> there's no time left over. Right. Um, you know, I'm either, you know, the, there's a family in my house and there's the family in my church and, and, and mo- almost all of my time and energy goes there, you know? Um, and so I wanted the, the idea of craft to focus on, on the making, the labor, the production, um, the craftswomanship, right. Because I think women are very vital to these processes that go into making kinship, that kinship is is not just about um, these received and historical ideas that kinship is about making, right? It's about doing. Um, And that's really in line with the new kinship studies that um, I think feminist anthropologists um, have been a part of and also um, uh, an, an ethical um, and pragmatic orientation to kinship that is common throughout the broader African diaspora, right? Um, that uh, in addition to the evangelical story of kin craft, what I also wanted to, to, to note is that um, these kin sensibilities have multiple sources. And one of those sources is um, an African diasporic, sen- the African diasporic sensibility um, that, that, that social worlds are, Um, often tend to be comprised of kin um, and that people of of African descent and the diaspora um, are connected to, they inherit ethical sensibilities, but also a number of technologies um, and material conditions that require the making of kinship, right? From the shipmate relationship that was um, forged in uh, the context of the African diaspora uh, to Uh, modes of kin making that occur in um, early 20th century um, and early 21st century contexts where migrants move from places of origin and find themselves in community and um, overwhelmingly um, opt into using kinship discourse um, as the language to describe those relationships. Um, And so that's also what motivated my use of, of kin craft. Um, And finally, I was really inspired. I was reading um, The Black Interior, which is a a collection of essays by um, poet and scholar Elizabeth Alexander. And she talked about just a sort of methodological position from which she analyzed poetry. And she writes about having a veneration for the sweat of the craft. Um, And that resounded with me as someone studying a religious community that had a particular orientation to patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, heteronormativity um, that didn't always align with my own political sensibilities, but watching the time and energy and labor that people expend um, and, and making this kinship and making this familial community, um, the cooking, you know, the home sharing, the resource sharing, all of that, um, that also really um, inspired me um, to, to sort of coin the term uh, kincraft as well.
1: Great. Thank you so much for that, uh, for that description of the term and those examples of how people are making kin in these churches. Mm-hmm. And so while I was reading the book, um, I thought about the implications of kincraft. And mm-hmm. from what I was thinking was, I, and this goes back to what you were saying about the African diaspora, That Mm -hmm. people present a particular vantage point from which to rethink kinship, because we Mm -hmm. came here in a process, you know, that separated us from our kin, and we had to remake kin and maintain Mm -hmm. kin in the midst of usually horrific circumstances. Um, Obviously, thinking about the transatlantic slave trade and slavery, Mm -hmm. and it seemed to me that you were rethinking kinship from this perspective and. Maybe arguing also for for the legitimacy of Black people forging these kinship relationships where and when they find themselves. And so I mm-hmm. wonder, am I on the right track, or or what were the larger implications or interventions that you wanted to make with the term?
0: Yes, you are on the right track. That's beautiful. Um, I think you know one of the the large implications um, that I wanted to make, um, or, or that could be made, um, is that um, really. There's, there's a, a kind of, I would call it a dated term, but um, the terminology of fictive kinship, um, mm-hmm. which has been used by um, scholars of kinship. Um, and fictive kinship being the term that's, that's used to describe um, kinship sensibilities, uh, kinship relations that are not biological in character or that don't correspond to the Western genealogical grid. Um, And I hope that this is, this book uh, delivers a series of nails in the coffin to that concept. I think that the new Kinship Studies has done that, I think new reproductive technologies has done that. Um, I don't think it's a term that fits, um, I think the kin worlds and kin realities and kin sensibilities of people of African descent, um, particularly people of African descent and the diaspora. you know, and there's a there's actually a sociologist named Margaret Nelson who wrote an article, um, and she uh, makes the argument. She does a literature review. Um, and she makes the argument that fictive kinship social scientists are more likely to use the designated designation of fictive kinship with Black and Latinx populations. Mm-hmm. That the use of the term on the part of social scientists themselves is racialized. Mm-hmm. Right. And she she questions about she questions the associations of that. Right. Um, Versus chosen kinship or, you know, um, uh, voluntary, voluntary social networks. Right. It tends to be the language associated with sort of white cishet communities. Um, You know, what's the notion of volunteerism versus fictive or fiction? Right. Uh, or chosen kinship, even that there's different designations of agency uh, which then have to, which force us to think about uh, analytical attribution, that these uh, labels that we use uh, to describe uh, the kinship worlds that people inhabit aren't benign, that they're politically loaded. And um, I also um, think that there is, and I, I try to talk about this in the introduction, um you know, we're inhabiting a moment where Afro-pessimism has made really productive um, critiques about, um, I think, anti-Blackness, uh, about Black institutional lives, about Black sociality um, versus, you know, the, the sort of central emphasis on Black social death. And and I think that um, critical Black study, I think anthropologists of, of <laughs> the African diaspora Um, are engaged in productive tension or productive conversation or productive affirmation of of Afro-pessimist theorists. Um, You know, I also think that looking at kinship now um, and in a moment shaped by Afro-pessimism forces us to think about kinship in historical terms. And um, I uh, land on the side of uh, thinking about... Uh, what I call black semiotic audacity Um, uh, that even in the context of the plantation, right? Um, Even in the context of slavery and its multiple afterlives, even uh, as people who descend from uh, jurisprudence and slave codes and colonial contexts in which they were not able to lay claim to kinship discourse or to lay claim to their actual kin, That people of African descent made themselves kin, um, or kined, because um, Castleberry reminded me in a talk that kin is a verb. Hmm. They kined each other anyway, and to me, this is not about creating some narrative of of black exceptionalism. But there's a there's an aesthetics to that, you know, that audacity that people kined anyway, and so. Um, what I want to do with this book is present a vital example of, of a very sort of thick, um, the spiritually defined kinship role that Black evangelicals create that does this, these relationships do so much work for people. But in addition to the functional qualities of what kinship does, right? That there is, that that Black evangelicals descend from uh, a hidden tradition, Right. Um, and that tradition is the African diaspora and Afro diasporic kinship, um, sensibilities and ethics around kinship. And I, I, I feel a very strong, um, affinity, um, a very strong sense of, of humility, epistemological humility, um, to study a tradition that was insisted upon by people in, in circumstances like that, that, that one of the things that attracted me to anthropology um, has been studying human capacity and black kin making to me is one of the most dynamic examples of human ingenuity, um, capacity, um, and I would say audacity as well. Um, and so that also I think is one of the, the big um, interventions that I want people to take away. Um, and that is, and that heteronormativity and heteropatriarchy, um, as a kinship discourse that's dominant here, does not obscure this other kinship tradition that also exists as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. Amen. The the capacity and <laughs> the audacity of uh, yeah kinship making traditions. Um, that sounds. That's great. And I was when I was reading the the book, the the churches seem to be made up of mainly African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. And Mm -hmm. so there's kinship across ethnic lines. And so I wondered about that in a context of where people talk about these tensions between these two groups, Mm -hmm. where Afro-Caribbeans may gain like a modicum of upward mobility, whereas African-Americans may not. Mm -hmm. And so in these churches with African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, they they saw themselves as brothers and sisters, and so I wondered if you saw any interethnic tensions arise, and if so, how how did the congregants negotiate these ethnic differences?
0: Yes, um, that I, I spent a chapter um, talking about that. Uh, so, yes, kinship is the operative discourse, and the spiritual kinship in these communities is is supposed to operate across ethnic lines. Um, what was interesting to me um, as a scholar who, you know, doing my qualifying exams, I was studying all this stuff about Black ethnic identity politics and distinctions and ethnic, uh, ethnic and economic competition models um, was how little church members would say about um, ethnic identity differences in their communities. Um, You know, I remember asking someone once, you know, an African-American member, um, because Dixon Bible Chapel had a Caribbean majority and Corinthian Bible Chapel had an African-American majority. And I asked an African-American woman, you know, well, are there any tensions between African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans? And she asked, well, what have you heard? And I said, well, I haven't heard anything. I'm just I'm just wondering. And she said, no, 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 I don't have anything to say about that. Um, so there are definitely some instances, and I try and talk about this, um, where people took a strategy of silence, I think, in in discussing those tensions. And, and part of that being related, I think, to the ideology, right, that that kinship is supposed to trump um, these, um, uh, supersede these sort of ethnic tensions. Um, uh identity um categories. Um at the same time, occasionally um there there were like probably two really detailed interviews I had with um two African American congregants who stated that they believed that ethnic identity politics um were at play in in community life and fellowship, that that it even motivated a, a church split. Um, that um, part of it um, had to do with religion itself, that this form of evangelicalism, Reagan was really, um, it was really missionized through the efforts of Afro-Caribbean evangelists Mm -hmm. uh, like T. Michael Flowers, who's an Afro-Bahamian evangelist who came to the segregated South in the 50s. And so there's a kind of moral hierarchy between African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. Afro-Caribbeans tend to come to this country and they're already brethren. This isn't always the case, but um, quite a number of the members of this community were brethren in the Caribbean before coming to the United States, whereas uh, quite a number of African-Americans converted into this form of Christianity. Uh, and so there's this idea of Afro-Caribbeans as born brethren, and uh, which was a, a concept someone mentioned in an interview, and uh, of African-Americans as having Baptist blood. Um, and, and the kind of moral distinction between religious founders versus religious converts, and that being something that's uh, ethnically uh, distinguished in the community. That being said, um, I also think that um, there is uh, a real commitment to centering this kinship language as something that stifles dissent and mutes dissent and mutes distinction, distinction and presents um, an important image of similitude. And uh, one of the, the things I did notice, and this was kind of looking at um, who I did interviews with, that the the people I interviewed, whether they were Afro-Caribbean or African-American at all, one of the things they had in common was that they were serial migrants. So serial migrants are people who have lived in at at least two places other than their place of birth. And so one of the things I also have to, I wanted to challenge or think about was um, what assumptions do we make about people's relationship to their ethnic identities? And how might mobility and increasing mobility shape people's relationships to their ethnic identity, right? Uh, can we imagine a world in which people's religious identifications supersede their ethnic identifications? And if not, why is that? Um, and so um, the the conversations around ethnicity and the silences around ethnicity in this community, I think were mutually productive for me. Um, I, I found it, um, you know, difficult to tease out, but it, it raised some really important questions that that I, I really do hope are are generative to scholars who are doing work um, around um, religion and ethnicity, particularly in the United States, where I think um, our sort of racial formation is 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 very polar and binaristic as it's as it's you know popularly rendered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely.
1: And so uh, you do ethnographic research, uh, you know, for the for the book, and you render with great detail and great care the encounters that you have with people and your interactions and relationships with people, and you participate in the very kinship relationships that you theorize. Um, so, for example, like in chapter two, you're an apprentice under the founder uh, T. Michael Flowers, mm-hmm. um, uh, the founder of the church. And uh, you develop a relationship yourself with, with spiritual parents. And you're also, like you said, you're going to Bible study. And so as we read the book, we can really see you participating with this community. And so as an ethnographer myself, I'm always interested in people's, in people's research. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk about uh, your fieldwork, maybe any opportunities and challenges or how you built rapport with this religious community?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. And um, I feel like my students from um, the field methods class that I just took would, <laughs> would love that. Um, yeah, I think uh, at the beginning, um, there was quite a bit of just me sitting around, you know, um, I would go to services, there are different services, I would go and, um, you know, just feel kind of out of place. I, I think that, um for some people who do field work um, there's that experience is very familiar, but I think for, for students or people who are interested in doing field work, I think it has this exotic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, Oh my gosh, you're with the people and you're, you know, and I was like, you don't know, really felt like uh, being the unpopular kid at school again, but on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point um, my one of my church fathers who's, who's Trinidadian, um, said, well, you know, me and my wife, we just took pity on you, you know, <laughs> we invited you over for dinner. Um, you know, but I would say that, <laughs> you know, and, you know, at one point he, we were at a service and he introduced me like, you know, this is a straight alley cat we, we adopted. Um, but I would also say that, um, you know, I was treated like, you know, you come in, you greet people. People are nice. They'll greet you. They learn, you know, they learn your name. There was one uh, service that I got. I got sick um, and I didn't go and I got multiple calls. This was before I think people had really started talking to me. And and definitely I went a long time before people did interviews with me, but um, people called my, my cell phone were like, are you okay? What happened? And so Part of, And when I asked um, the, the men who become my church father, you know, like, why, why did I get all these phone calls? This was not a kind of Christianity I was used to, okay? I was not used to going to a church in a city and not going one Sunday and four people calling my house to make sure I was okay. And so he said, well, of course we would call you. Like what church would not call you if you didn't show up? And I was like, well, I'm not a member. And he's like, that doesn't matter. And he said, we knew that you were new to the Atlanta area and you didn't have people. So, you know, once again, that's an ethical sensibility. A person's supposed to have people and a migrant is someone who is prone to not having people. And that is understood as a particular kind of vulnerability. Um, And so I think my, you know, it's a mixture of awkwardness of people feeling sorry for you of, of community sensibilities, you know, kicking in, um, and um, yeah, I think also one thing you you th- that you learn as as an ethnographer is that as you're trying to learn about a place, people are studying you too. You know, they're they're watching you and they're paying attention, and there's a conversation happening and. You know, I know, I know some conversation had to happen because I started doing an interview here and there. And then after a while, people sort of en masse started saying, oh, I'll do an interview with you. Um, And so I don't know if someone said, yeah, I did an interview with her. It's not so bad. Um, But uh, another uh, thing I learned from someone was uh, that at Bible studies, one person said, well, I looked at your Bible and saw that it was marked up. And I said, okay. And she said, well, that's when I knew you were one of us. And I, I said, well, how would that make me one of you? Said, well, I knew that you were a Bible believer because it's clear you knew your Bible and you had scriptures memorized and you knew the word. And so, but I realized that that was a, a process of studying. She was studying me. And um, it was really a result of the fact that I went to an evangelical primary school, um, an elementary school. And so I did have a marked up Bible and I had to memorize scripture um, as part of, of, of that school. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process of, of coming to know and, and getting to be known and people studying and people making up their mind and as people learn more and more about you, them deciding if they want to know you more or if they, they want to know you less, you know, and I also don't want to present, um, you know a kumbaya story there are some people who had no interest in talking with me um if they would see me coming they would walk away they would end their conversations you know and that's that's also 100 they're right um so yeah i i hope that describes the the process um but I, I think that when you're studying relationships being in relationship is 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 vital and i i hope that um for, for people who are field workers, that some of that transparency about, um, my church parents or even my own divorce, you know, um, I got engaged while I did field work. And that was another thing that shaped (laughs) how I was received by the community that my own kin location shaped, shaped my grounding in the community. Um, and so field work is an inherently relational process and, and, um, I think doing research on kinship um, demonstrated that to me or revealed that to me in very um, stark terms, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that, that's great, and that definitely describes the process. I also teach ethnographic research mm-hmm. methods, and it's really hard sometimes to fully communicate like the experience of, of doing fieldwork because, like you said, it's, there's a lot of awkward moments. There's a lot of, you know, there can be a lot of music- <laughs> You sitting by yourself, which I you know. I that. And you you, you almost you, there's a moment when you don't even know, am I part do they even know who I am? Am I part of the community? <laughs> All these questions that are, you know, <laughs> that go through people's minds and you're you're are right. Um, the mistakes
0: so, you make too and you don't know their mistakes yet. Oh yeah, You know? Mistakes. Oh my gosh, the gaffes, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, and then someone has to tell you that you messed up, right? You might know that you messed up or be able to do so. And then there are the mistakes that you didn't even know that you made. Somebody has to take you to the side and tell you that you made. And, and so that just, you know, I think, I, I, I mean, I can't speak for you, but there are definitely some times where I thought, why am I doing this? Like, I, <laughs> what made me think this is a good idea? I feel so weird and weirdly in place and out of place at the same time. And I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's very, I just keep thinking epistemological humility, <laughs> yeah. very humbling. I definitely had that experience where I majored in,
1: in anthropology and then went to grad school and I thought, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> 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 Did I miss something? It's yeah, it's definitely eye-opening that <laughs> Um, so I wanted to ask you about teaching kinship. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I thought about when I was reading how typically anthropologists teach kinship, where we draw these, you know, kinship charts, and we draw these lines, mm-hmm. between relations. And um, I thought your idea of kincraft, it in a way refuses that kind of visual organization, mm-hmm. because, you know, you focus on the process of making kin rather than its outcomes. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering how you teach kinship in your classroom or how you bring any of these insights from the book into the into the classroom.
0: Wow, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I, I find teaching about I have a class on religion and family um, that I find to be frustrating to teach. because I almost like I feel like I don't ever know if I'm doing it right or if there's you know something I'm missing. But um, I try to teach it as um, a kind of comparative class. Um, I, I start by being very clear about the um, epistemologies that I work in, you know? So like at the beginning of class, I'm like, you know, I was, I was trained by a feminist anthropologist of kinship. I identify um, as an anthropologist of kinship. Um, and so we start with um, feminist epistemology. So we read stuff by Carol Delaney and Sylvia Yanagasako. We read stuff by Patricia Hill Collins, um, you know, um, that I, I explained to them, this is not a kumbaya story, um, but that the study of kinship is is a study of cultural constitution, but it's also very much a study um, of power and power relationships. Um, and there are a number of ways um, this could be studied, but this is, this is a kind of, this is me once again, I can't, I think, uh, being transparent about the, the one of the primary epistemologies that I am trained in and still work in um, I also talk about social domain analysis and inter-institutional construction so we start with a little bit of theory and then we move into unit level discussions right um where we might look at um, I tend to teach something about uh, conservative christianity um, I have yet to teach my book and i don't i don't know if my i don't know if I can <laughs> I don't know if i can do it you know i i thought i was going to this semester and then i was just like oh i don't i can't um but you know i've taught books about for instance like purity uh pretty the chastity movement stuff like that there's a book called making chastity sexy um i've taught about um evangelicalism and the very controversial ex-gay movement um i um have taught about lakumi um and um, so, this past year, I ended the the book with uh, "Party for Lazarus," um, which is an amazing um, kind of a thick description ethnography um, of uh, Lakumi practice. But it's it's set around an intergenerational family history as well. Um, and so, it's just so artfully done because you can see um, these like very dense scenes of, of ritual practice. Like you're transported but kinship runs through uh, this ritual practice, right? Um, uh, whether it's your sort of genealogical family, whether it's your your family of practice, whether it's your, um, and both can shape your relationship to the Orisha, right? Like if your father is a, a son, you know, a Shango, like it's more likely that you also are, you know? Um, The unit that students tend to like the most is uh, the unit that, ironically, or maybe not, um, doesn't have an ethnography. I teach Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain um, in the course as well and use it, um, you know, uh, own my lack of literary training. (laughs) Um, But as a text that talks about um, some of the real painful and violent interpolations of of religion and patriarchy within uh, a religious community. Um, even as to me, it has this, this real sort of glistening, queer um, sociality um, and affinity present. Um, it's a kind of critique of heterosexuality, but also uh baldwin waxes poetic when he talks about pentecostal ritual and the people right that there's you get that there's just this this beauty of the peopling of pentecostalism even as he's critical of its patriarchal um, and familial intonations right um and so then we talk about what does it mean to render family what are the best mediums is ethnography the best medium for rendering religion and and family and kinship? What can fiction do? um, Or what can memoir do that ethnography, at least as it's popularly constructed, can't, right? And so it becomes um, a real um, conversation starter um, by that point. Um, And so that's how I tend to, it's very provisional. I I find that that's one of those syllabus I one of those syllabi i'm always switching readings out and throwing stuff in and, and it's possible that um, i'm going to retire the class for a little bit now um, and move on to some teaching for uh, my newer work but um i try to be um you know i've taught about um you know ancestor veneration and filial piety and and, and buddhist uh communities i've taught um, there's a book, Pagan, Pagan Family Values, right? Uh, I've talked about paganism and and their constructions of kinship. So there's some really amazing um, works out there. And um, I, I love getting a chance to read about um, how different communities um, uh, engage in social fields where religion or spirituality and, and kinship are mutually constitutive. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds great. That's, that's a, a great reading list that people can, you know, uh, can engage with as well as your book as well. So those are some really great resources. I actually wrote them down as you were saying them <laughs> as well. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, and so as we're winding down, I wanted to ask about the cover of the book. Mm -hmm. Because it's really beautiful. And it's an artwork by Faith Ringgold. And it looks Mm -hmm. like a scene of black people in church, um, Mm -hmm. maybe a wedding, I see two people wearing white. Um, But the dominant colors are yellow, blue and green. And it also kind of looks like a quilt. So I was wondering if you could talk about the cover, um, if it has any particular meaning to you, how you settled on it, um, anything you want to say about the cover of the book.
0: Yeah, so um, the cover is um, a piece of artwork by Faith Ringgold. It's called Matisse's Chapel. Um, I, um, you know, encountered the artwork. Let's see, this is 2021. Um, I would say I was in the thick of revising the book, and I was looking at an art book, and I saw it, and I started crying. Um, because it, you know, there was something ab- about it that just reminded me of being in, um, I spent more time in DBC. of being in Dixon Bible Chapel, um, you know, seeing the families kind of how people would kind of sit on their rows with each other, you know, um, and and how that would help me orient who was in charge that day and not. Um, I also really love uh, Faith Ringgold's work because I'm a quilter. Um, and so, um, I have, um, been a fan of, of her artwork for, um, some time. Um, one of the beautiful things about this artwork, um, is that it's set in this famous chapel, Matisse's chapel. And so the colors that you see are the colors that you, you see in, um, Matisse's chapel, which I believe, I believe that's in France, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but. Although the artwork is, is ostensibly named um, Matisse's Chapel, um, the chapel itself becomes decentered, right? And the people themselves to me take on the aura of the sacred, right? The, 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 the chapel itself, the famed chapel becomes uh, somewhat inconsequential to the artwork, right? It becomes the backdrop um, and they become the center of the piece. And I thought that was so um, just sort of clever. Uh, what's also important is that um, it's a depiction of Faith Ringgold's family,
1: mm.
0: you know, um, and in an interview, um, you know, uh, she just sort of talks about um, who the people are. There's some of the, the family members were family members who had died at the time that she made the artwork they'd passed on um, and um, to me, the fact that she, she memorialized her family, um, uh, through the medium of quilting in this sacred space, um, was just, to me, it highlighted two crossroads, right? Family and, and the sacred that were just really, um, central to the project itself. I'm so glad that you asked me this question because I didn't actually write it in the book, but I thought a lot about, <laughs> about, uh, this piece and, um, um, really, I kept a picture of it on my wall, um, as I was finishing it, it was, it was motivating for me, especially, uh, when I needed a kind of, <laughs> you know, you're in the middle of the revision process and you're in the muck. It was, it was a motivating piece for me to, to just to look at, uh, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I chose it. Um, the border is a bit different, you know, um, the actual artwork itself, the border is, uh, way more variegated and multicolored Um, and so that would have meant that um, Ms. Ringgold would have approved um, uh, some slight alterations to her artwork for the book. Um, If you look on the inside, a friend of mine, Imani Azuri, who's an artist, she was like, "Um, did you see that it says copyright Faith Ringgold 2020? Um, And I said, no. She's like, that means that she gave permission to alter the image for your book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I sent her, I haven't heard back from her, but I sent her a copy of the book and a thank you card, um, just thanking her for the broader corpus of her work, uh, but also thanking her for this work, for uh, the vulnerability and intimacy of sharing her family with viewers for the ways in which it really helped motivate me to write. um, And just um, also as a quilter, the, the great amount of detail that goes into even just the most basic of quilting. Like I'm, I'm no, <laughs> um, you know, uh, great artiste um, when it comes to quilting. Uh, but just the great amount of diligence and care. I mean, this is an example of kin craft too, no? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also helped. It was just the thing that kind of helped me feel like I was on the right track. It came at this wonderful time in, in the, the writing of the book. And so that's that's why I chose it. And just seeing it, just the cover of it, it makes me feel happy. There's a, um, a figure in the artwork that my eye is drawn to every time. On the back row, on the left, there is a young woman whose head is slightly inclined uh, to the right, and for whatever reason, my eyes always drawn there and it gives me a great sense of calm and peace and even, and even joy. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I don't know if ever, if anyone ever loves their book cover so much, but I am, I am thrilled, um, that, that Ms. Ringgold approved the use of her work and, um, that I was able to get a piece of art that, that really spoke to the central concept, but that, that really also, I could say, honestly motivated, my writing itself too. Mm-hmm.
1: That's really nice. I'm glad I asked the question because I've never <laughs> known the, the, the backstory about, and about that. This is Faith Ringgold's family. I had no idea about yeah. that. So that it just adds extra layers of meaning to the image mm-hmm. that really, you know, it just makes it really come alive and how it's this visual personification of Kingcraft. is just, it's just wonderful. Um, so the last, Last question is: um, If you have, what are your upcoming projects? So now that KinCraft is out in the world, um, what what are you currently working on, or or what do you have on the horizon? I realize that we're in a, in, a, in, a, <laughs> in a in a pandemic, and so it's, it's not easy to you know move forward uh, different projects. But if you have anything, uh, you know that you're turning to next.
0: Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I have, um, something I'm working on presently. I am, um, doing, um, uh, research, um, and writing up, um, a second book presently. It's on, um, black church arson. So in 2015, um, a predominantly black Seventh Day Adventist church was, was burned in my hometown in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, days after the Emmanuel Nine um, were murdered by Dylan Ruth. Um, and so my mother, um, who speaking of kinship, right, um, it's like, well, you need to do something. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> How is that? Mom, I have this whole other book. And, you know, she's like, well, yeah, you're a religion professor, you know, so you should look into it. Um, And so um, starting in the summer of 2016, um, I've been doing interviews and and reading and learning um, about the College Hill arson and about Black church arson and its history in um, our country. Um, And so I've been working on that. I have a journal article um, that will be coming out with the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. that um, explores an artwork. I really, I love art. Um, explores an artwork made by a British sculptor um, from the alleged remains of a black church um, burning. Um, and so um, I analyze that and, and think through the significance of materiality and representation, which has helped me think about the theoretical um, undercarriage for the project as a whole. And so that's 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 what I'm mostly working on Um, now, um, reading about, right now I'm in the midst of reading about hate crime and writing a piece for a criminology journal. Um, and yeah, that's, that's very different topic, but that's where I am. Great. Presently. (laughs) Sounds good. So we will look out
1: for that, um, on the horizon. We'll look out for the article and, uh, and this, this next body of work coming out, um, So I have been speaking with Dr. Todney Thomas, the author of Kincraft, The Making of Black Evangelical Sociality, published by Duke University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for the invitation. That's such a nice thing. Thanks for writing the book. That's such a nice nice expression of gratitude, um, Reagan. Um, It's a pleasure to really be in conversation with you any, any time. It's always a good time to talk to you, but it's, it's great to talk about um, talk shop with you as well. You're a very great interviewer. Thank you so much.